Turn with me, if you would, in your copies of God's Word to Acts chapter 2. Today we will begin reading in verse 37. If you were with us last week, hopefully you remember, we looked at the model sermon. It was the day of Pentecost. The Spirit of God descends in power. The Spirit fills those first Christians, and those 120 people begin to spill out in the streets and proclaim the wondrous works of God in foreign languages, languages that they previously could not speak. A crowd gathers Peter stands up in front and begins to preach. And we looked at this sermon that Peter preached last week, and we saw how he pointed the hearers to texts of Scripture, specifically Joel 2, Psalm 16, and Psalm 110. Peter pointed them to Scripture, and he explained the Scripture to them, and he made application to them, and then he calls for a response. And we see that central to that explanation and application of those texts is the understanding that Christ is central. These aren't some vague religious texts about God generally saving His people. They are pointing to Jesus Christ. And Peter, in this explanation and application, brings out the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ. That's what he does in this model sermon. He opens with Scripture and points them to Christ. But then he leaves them on a cliffhanger. I don't know if you noticed that last week. He leaves them on a bit of a cliffhanger. And it makes them quite uneasy, to say the very least. Back in verse 37, he says, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you've crucified. So Peter is telling them, You men, you killed, you crucified the Messiah. You killed the one that God made both Lord and in Christ. You killed the one that God raised from the dead and who ascended into heaven and is sitting at the right hand of the Father right now. The one whose enemies will one day be made his footstool. Here's the truth about what you have done and who you did it to. And what's their response? They're absolutely undone. I remember back in my youth ministry days, I, uh, every summer, I would spend at least two weeks on Florida beaches, all expenses paid. You might think that's a pretty sweet deal and be a little jealous until you hear about my accommodations. I stayed at the Laguna Beach Christian Retreat Center. Uh, pretty much every year I was stuck in Jerusalem dorm. We seminary students joked about Jerusalem dorm. We called it either the abomination of desolation, or uh, the den of iniquity. But I slept on a bunk bed that was too small for me in a room full of junior high boys, and everything smelled like 
sunscreen and mildewed towels, and there was this perpetual cloud of Axe body spray that hung in the air, (laughs) and then subpar cafeteria food. But we didn't go for the food, and we didn't go for the accommodations. We went for the teaching. And every night, we would have a large group session where usually an an RUF campus minister, so a PCA campus minister, would come and preach every night. But during the day, there were elective classes that the students could sign up for and take. One of them was taught by Joey Stewart. Joey, at the time, was president of RYM, Reformed Youth Ministries. And Joey taught a class on how we are made right with God. It was a class on justification. And Joey wanted these middle school students to see how they were made right before God, how they were made at peace with God. And he told them that this was through faith alone in Jesus alone. But before Joey could show these kids how they could be made right with God, he had to show them that they were not right with God. He had to show them that they were guilty and they were in need of grace. He had to, sh- he had to uh, show them their disease before he could tell them about the remedy. So this was a three-day elective. I think it was a Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday morning. And on day one, Joey would scare them to death. He would show them God's holy standard and how they utterly failed to reach that standard. Now, I've been at some, I've been at some youth events where the, the express purpose is to scare the kids to death. And generally, I'm not a fan of that. What Joey did was simply say, this is what God requires. Now let's turn the mirror around and honestly say, can you meet that standard? And like clockwork, every year, there would be a new seventh grade boy who had never taken Joey's class, and he would go to day one and he would come back to Jerusalem dorm, eyes wide with fear, and he would say, (laughs) I'd ask him, how was Joey's first day? And he would say, I'm, the responses would always vary. But some scared little boys. And I would say, hey, make sure you go back and hear what he has to say tomorrow and the next day. Because on those days, Joey was going to tell you about God's solution to our problem. He was going to give them the balm of the gospel. That's a picture of what we have before us today. Peter has preached God's word, and the hearers are cut to the heart. They realize they have a sin problem, and for the first time, they see the truth behind their actions. They see that they're sinners. And they see the one whom they have offended, the King of Kings. Today, we're going to look at their response to this sermon which is this question of what shall I do? And then we're going to look at the answer Peter gives them, the balm of the gospel. But before we look at that, let's ask for the Lord's blessing on the preaching of his word. 
Father, we know that you still work like this today. You still work in the hearts of men and women, boys and girls. You work through the preaching of your word. And so, Father, we ask that like a surgeon, you would cut us where we're needed so that we might be saved and brought to new life. Would you cut away the excess and things that take us away from you and pull us away from you? Would you help us to see those things? And would you speak to us now during this time? We ask in Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to begin reading in verse 37 of Acts chapter 2. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized. And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. So what's the first thing we see in this model of how God saves sinners? He cuts them to the heart. Verse 37, Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart, And said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? You know, like those terrified junior high boys after day one of Joey Stewart's elective. These individuals present in Jerusalem are confronted with their guilt. And they cry out, what shall we do? For the first time, they are aware And they are deeply convicted that Jesus Christ is Lord and, oh no, what did we do? We crucified him. And Luke tells us that they were cut to the heart. You know what this means? Um, I'm sure we've all experienced something similar. You know, you, you have this feeling, you get deep inside when all of a sudden you realize that you have messed up terribly. You know, we've all experienced that. Luke is telling us, it, it, but cut to the heart, is even, it's, it's more than that. Luke is telling us that they were pierced and they were cut to the center of their being. That's what the heart is in Scripture. It's not actually referring to the, the organ that pumps blood. When Scripture talks about the heart, it's talking about the core of who you are. If, if God could peel back all the layers of who you are like an onion and get to you at the very center, who are you at your core? That's what the heart is. And they received a heart wound. They received a, a pang of conscience, this shooting pain deep within their soul that they, they knew that they had done something awful and they had no idea how to fix it. 
I want you to imagine a time, surely, maybe I'm the only person who's done this, but you're you're stubbornly holding to the opinion that you're right and you've done nothing wrong in this circumstance. And then something happens to change your mind in a moment. Your eyes are opened and all of a sudden you realize that you are in the wrong. But you have absolutely no idea how to begin fixing the damage. That's the conclusion these Jews in Jerusalem come to. They had done something awful. They had no idea what to do about it. But the person that they had offended wasn't wasn't their spouse or their kids or their neighbors or their coworkers. It wasn't someone online that they had offended in a comment thread somewhere. No, they had crucified the Son of God. And upon seeing this truth, they are undone and cry out, what shall we do? Now, what caused their eyes to be opened? Who cut them to the heart? God did. This wasn't some internal goodness that was inherent to them that opened their eyes and so they could see the error of their ways. It wasn't even Peter. It was God who cut them. God was working not only through the mouths and the words of the apostles, he was working in the hearts of those unbelieving Jews present in Jerusalem. Those same people who had called for and celebrated the crucifixion of his own son. And we might think, it might be our first impression, that this cutting of the heart is bad news or it's negative, but it's not, it's the opposite. It may not seem like good news at first because receiving a heart wound like this, like I'm sure a lot of you have, it's devastating. It feels awful in the moment, but it is a good It is a blessing because it's the first step that God takes in bringing a sinner to salvation. To use the language that God uses in Ezekiel, he is removing their heart of stone and giving them a heart of flesh. How does God do this? He shines light and gives, which brings the knowledge of sin. You know, just like a, you, have, you can have a dark room and all of a sudden bring a flashlight in and you're able to see what's there. That's what God does in our hearts. As Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 4, For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. The first thing... God does in making a sinner a new creation is to send light. He sends light so that we can know who we really are, what we have really done, and who we've done it against. Here's some application for us. When we think about this heart wound that is given, have have you felt this? It's a question for every one of us to ask. Have you been cut to the heart? Have you been confronted with the reality of your sin 
and in a moment cried out in desperation, what shall I do? Has the word of God given you a heart wound? If, if you've never experienced that, I would love to have a conversation with you. I need to have a conversation with you because the Christian journey always begins with this pang of conscience. Remember at the very beginning of Pilgrim's Progress, the very beginning of the book, he's, he's wandering around the city of destruction and he's got that burden on his back and he's having this pang of conscience. Have you experienced that? There's a story I've told you before and I'll tell you again and again um, because it's just, it, it's a, it, it applies so much. It's a story about an elderly lady in a church who one day told the choir director that she'd started changing words to Amazing Grace. And instead of saying the word wretch, she would use substitute wretch for soul. And she would sing Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a soul like me. When the choir director asked her why she was changing the words, she answered by saying, well, I've never been a wretch in my life and I don't plan on becoming one. You have to think, if you weren't a wretch, why would grace be amazing? Why would you be singing about it? But those are dangerous words that woman uttered. They're revealing words. They reveal it. She has not experienced the same thing that was experienced in Acts 2.37. When these Jews are cut to the heart and they cry out, brothers, what shall we do? She, it appeared from her words, she had not experienced that. She had not been brought to that first step of how God saves sinners. And a question for us to think about very seriously is who do we identify with? Do we identify with that woman who changed the words to amazing grace and we don't view ourselves as a wretch. If So I'd love, again, to have a conversation with you. I don't want anyone to be deceived. I don't want anyone to rest on false assurance or false hope. Do you identify with that woman or do you identify with these Jews here in Acts 2.37 saying, what shall we do? Do you feel a pang of conscience? If so, then praise God because that's the first cut in an incision of a surgery that's going to save your life. God cuts them to the heart and then he gives them commands. We see this in verse 38. How does Peter respond to their question? He says to them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ. And notice, Peter's not giving them advice. He's not giving, him, uh, he's not giving them his opinion. He commands them. Everyone hearing his sermon, repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus. Are you familiar with what it means to repent? It's more than just feeling bad about sin. It's more than just confessing sin. It's more than even stopping from sinning. 
To repent is to turn away. It's to do a 180 degree turn, to stop pursuing sin and to turn toward the things of God. Peter gives them an example of something to repent of in verse 40. We read, and with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. Save yourselves from this crooked generation. Now, save yourself, okay? We, it seems like Paul is saying, or Peter is saying that if you don't turn, you're going to perish. If you don't turn, you're going to die in your sins. If you keep going down this road, it is going to end badly. Save yourself. From who? From this crooked generation. There's a PCA pastor down in Pontotoc. I, I listened to his sermon um, on this same text. He, he started this back in, uh, probably back in August. But he, he had an illustration here that I identify with very much and it's very frustrating. And it's this, about this word crooked. How many of you have ever gone to Lowe's and maybe there's a project you're working on and you need to buy some lumber? Uh, let's say especially like a two-by-four. It can be very difficult to find a decent two-by-four at Lowe's. You've, you've got some that look like they've just been chewed up by beavers and they, they're just really just raggedy looking. And then you've got others who will turn, they'll, they'll bow and almost look more like they're starting to become a C-shape. And then others that will just twist like a, like a helix. And every one you pick, you have to pick it up, look down the board, make sure it's straight, turn it over, make sure it's not all chewed up, and then add it to your pile. There are boards at Lowe's that are too twisted and warped to use. They're too twisted and warped to be good for anything. And that's what Peter's talking about. He's saying there are people who are twisted and warped. Stay away from them. This crooked generation. Peter's talking about the religious elite. The scribes, the Pharisees, the chief priests, those who were seeking a way to put Jesus to death and those who placed Roman guards at the tomb just to make sure his body wouldn't make a reappearance. And these are the same ones who paid those same soldiers to lie and say that Christ's body was stolen by his followers. These are the same people, presumably, who are standing in the shadows underneath the temple watching this sermon and they're plotting how Whatever they, what they did to Jesus, they could do next to Peter. And Peter's saying, turn from them. Leave them. If you want to live and not perish. A couple of applications for us here. First, what are things that we need to turn away from? What are some things you need to turn away from? What are some things that pull you away from Jesus? That's what this crooked generation was threatening to do, trying to do, to pull these hearers away from Jesus. What are some things that pull you further away from him? Those are things that need to be left, things that need to be turned away from. 
It's not simply enough to have the desire to pursue Christ. We also have to turn away from the things that pull us from him. Calvin says, quote, It is not enough to have Christ set before us unless we are also taught to run away from those things that take us away from Christ, end quote. What are those things that take you away from Christ? Run from those things. Second thing we see is that we would be mistaken to think that repentance is only something we do at the beginning of the Christian life. Here in Acts 2, we do see a bunch of infant Christians coming to faith and repenting. But it would be wrong for us to conclude that this is something that, all right, they've done this once, now they're going to graduate from it. We don't graduate from repentance. We stop repenting when we see Jesus face to face. Because only then will we stop sinning. That's a wonderful thought. That one day our battle against sin will be ended permanently. You hear people who will lose a a loved one to cancer or heart disease or uh, some other illness. And they'll say that they they finally won the battle. It's over. There's no more fighting. We can say that same thing about sin. When we die and instantly go to our Lord, that battle against sin will be over forever. But until then, we keep repenting. We pray daily that God would help us to see how we are going the wrong way and give us the strength to turn around. So there's this command to repent, but there's also a command to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And here Peter is simply being faithful and repeating the same command that he was given by Jesus in Matthew 28 at the Great Commission. Before Jesus returned to the Father, he reassures his disciples that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him, and therefore they are to go and to make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Now, there are some here who will see a contradiction and they'll get hung up over the fact that, well, Jesus says to baptize in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, but Peter says to baptize in the name of Jesus. Which one is right? Well, I'd like to simply say, number one, Jesus, Peter is not... Peter is not diving into an in-depth discussion of baptism here. He's simply giving them a command, right? He is not redefining the verbal formulation that is to be spoken at a person's baptism. He's pointing them to Jesus. In this baptism, he's pointing, in, in baptism rather, he's pointing them to Jesus. And we see something similar, and this is kind of interesting Peter makes this clear in one of his later writings. In 1 Peter 3, Peter brings up Noah and the flood. We remember that story, Noah and the flood. And he reminds those readers that Noah and the flood were saved from the waters. And Peter identifies those flood waters with baptism. 
He says that baptism corresponds to this. Baptism corresponds to the flood. Meaning that in baptism, we're given a picture that just as Noah and his family were saved and those outside of the ark experienced the waters of judgment in the same way Jesus Christ underwent a baptism of judgment. The deluge of the wrath of God was poured out upon him on the cross so that all who would believe in him would be saved and delivered just as Noah was saved and delivered. Peter makes this point in 1 Peter 3. That's what baptism is pointing to. Peter is not, again, redefining the words that we're supposed to say at a person's baptism. He's pointing them to their Savior. He's pointing them to the only place where they will find forgiveness. And then he says, repent, be baptized, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So God not only gives us a knowledge of our sin, not only does he give us faith in Christ, he also gives us the Holy Spirit. And I can't say enough here, but I will simply say that it is only the Spirit of God that assures us of what Christ has done for us. The Spirit applies what Christ has done to us. Only by the Spirit of God are we able to forgive those who hurt us. Only by the Spirit of God are we able to respond to the commands of God in obedience. Only by the Spirit of God are we comforted in the hour of death or at the graveside of a spouse or a child. What a gift the Holy Spirit is. God himself dwelling within us, keeping us, strengthening us, empowering us. The same spirit that raised Christ Jesus from the dead is freely offered to the same people who were present at his execution. And that same spirit is freely offered to you and me as well. God cuts them to the heart. He gives them commands to repent and be baptized. And last, he calls them to himself. See this in verse 39. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Skip down to verse 41. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. God calls them to himself. That's what he did on Pentecost. He drew them to himself. I want you to imagine a well where there's a deep black hole and there's a bucket that is lowered down on a rope into that well and the bucket is filled with water and then the person at the top pulls on that rope and draws it back up, draws that water up out of the well. That is a picture of how God draws his people. And on this day, this day of Pentecost, we see the Lord draw 3,000 people to himself. First thing in the morning on Pentecost, you have 120 Christians. Then by the end of the day, you have 3,120 Christians. It's an amazing thing and something that we should long for and 
pray for that we would see in our own day. Dr. Derek Thomas tells a story that took place in Bristol, England in 1739. It involved George Whitfield, the, the wonderful um, evangelist. George Whitfield would go to these coal mines and he would preach outside of them. And coal mining, I mean, I'm sure you know, is a very, a very hard way to make a living, a very difficult and dangerous way to make a living, not a very healthy way to make a living. And men would go down into these mines and they would spend long periods of time down there harvesting this coal. And when they would come out back into the light of day, their faces would be covered with soot. So their faces would be black as night. And all you could see, you could see the whites of their eyes and then their white teeth, but everything else was just covered pitch black from the coal dust. And there's this story that George Whitfield goes to one of these coal mines in Bristol and he stands outside of the entrance and he begins preaching and these coal miners begin to come out and their faces are covered with soot and they stand there and they listen to George Whitfield preach Christ. And as they listen, they experience this same cut to the heart and tears begin to well up in their eyes and to come down their faces. And this, this story is so memorable because these, these men had white streaks that started to appear on their faces as they not only heard their incredible need, but the incredible grace that completely covered their need, the grace of God. And these coal miners with white streaks all over their faces accepted Christ, and they were added to the church. I've got two closing applications I want us to hear before we end. The first is that we need to realize just who Peter is talking about when he says, um, and all those who are far off in verse 39. Look at verse 39. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Peter is talking about the covenant people, the covenant children, and then all those who are far off. Who is that? That's the Gentiles. And by far off, Peter isn't specifically talking about Gentiles who are on another continent, which they would be included. But by far off, he's talking about the distance between a Jew and a Gentile. One is God's chosen people, the other was not. It's a huge distance between the two, but now we see that the promise is for the Gentile, one who is far off. And that's wonderful news to me because I come from a long line of Gentiles. Imagine a lot of you do as well. It's wonderful news. God has called us. He has drawn us near. Paul tells us in Ephesians 2, remember that at one time, you Gentiles were separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Have you been brought near? Is the blood of Christ your hope? and your trust.
final application. God cuts sinners to the heart. He gives commands by which they respond. And then he calls them to himself. But he uses people. He uses people. Peter didn't just sit back and say, well, you know, God's sovereign. He's got this covered. He sent the Spirit. That's all we need. No, Peter responded to the Spirit's leading and was used by God. George Whitfield went to that coal mine and preached because he understood that God brings about this salvation through means, and he will use individuals to accomplish that. And so he sent George Whitfield to that coal mine. How can God use you? How can he use you to speak words, to show love to those who are outside of this community, to those who are far off? God will bring lost men, women, boys, and girls to himself, and he uses people like us. And if we would humble ourselves and soften our hearts, I think we'd be amazed at what our God will accomplish through imperfect, redeemed people like us. Let's pray. Father, what a comfort it is to hear these words, um, especially as those who are very aware of our imperfection and are very aware of our need. Father, the fact that you you cut us is a it's a comfort because it's a sign that you're drawing near and that the good work you have begun within us you will see to completion. Father, you are the master physician. Would you continue to heal and draw us to yourself? And Father, would you give us the boldness, and the love for you that we would respond and be used by you in mighty ways to bring about the salvation of many. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.